1 Corinthians 4, 6. I have applied all these things to myself and the polis for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of all my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in the spirit of gentleness. Our, our subject this morning is authentic and genuine Christian work. What will it look like to be part of and to engage an, in an authentic Christian ministry, the spectacle of it? What will it feel like to be part of a, and to engage in a genuine Christian work, the experience of it? What does it mean to practice such a work, the practice of it? We're at the conclusion of Paul's defense of his own Christian ministry. This situation is this letter to the worldly church in Corinth. Corinth was in Greece. Corinth was a place where you found all the intellectual, economic, philosophical, and cultural privilege of Greece. Corinth was an intellectual powerhouse, a Russell, Russell group, an Ivy League of its day. Corinth was the financial powerhouse, Wall Street and the city of its time. 
Paul, Corinth was politically key, Westminster and Capitol Hill. Corinth was sophisticated, Covent Garden and the Metropolitan. And so in a sense, win Corinth and you might win Greece. Reach Corinth and your reach would extend far beyond. You remember this very perceptive comment by Charles Hodge, who was principal of Princeton Theological Seminary, wrote a, a commentary on 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in 1857. He has this to say. There were not only many pure and exemplary members of the church in Corinth, but much faith and piety, even in those who were more or less chargeable with the offenses of the church. But this letter shows us how the gospel works in heathen lands. It's like leaven hid in a measure of meal. It's long before the whole mass is leavened. It does not transform the character of men or the state of society in a moment. It keeps up a continual conflict with evil until it is finally overcome. Pagan Corinth, worldly Corinth. What a battle royal is going on in Corinth. And how key for us in not so much a um, first time hearing of the gospel in a heathen land, but a now re having rejected the gospel heathen land. And the idea that we're living in Christian Britain or the Christian West can only be held on to by the most deluded now. There has been meltdown in this country for the Christian faith. So what does it look like when you live in worldly Britain and in worldly London? Of course, if Paul loses chapter, the battle of chapters one to four for his ministry, he can say what he likes in chapter five through 16 and nobody's gonna pay a blind bit of attention. So this is absolutely key as we see in chapters one through four, a defense of apostolic ministry. And it's almost worth asking ourselves this question through the rest of this week. I hope you'll ponder this passage a lot. Would I go to a church led by the Apostle Paul? I suspect a number of us would find it very uncomfortable. What will it look like? What will it feel like? What will it mean to be engaged in such a ministry? Well, there are three images that, that uh, dominate verse 8 through 21. One is the gladiatorial arena. The other is, I'm going to call it the kitchen. And the third is the family. We'll begin with the gladiatorial arena. It's there in verses 8 and 9. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Here we are in the gladiatorial arena. One of my favorite films, Gladiator, Russell Crowe. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north. It's a great moment, isn't it? But when the conquering general returned, 
he headed the armies into the O2 equivalent of his day. And he came first, and then came the great heroes who'd performed Herculean feats on the battlefield. And at the back end of the procession, now we got the whole crowd baying in adulation. At the back end of the procession, you've got, oh, the conquered soldiers and leaders of the opposing army. And in front of the baying crowd, they were then put to death. Question, where does Paul see himself in this procession? Answer, verse 9. I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. So what is the experience of authentic Christian apostolic ministry? Oh, deathly. Now, this challenges the worldly church of Corinth to its very roots. Verse 8 is bitingly ironic, caustically sarcastic, almost mocking. And remember, these are people whom Paul loves and whom he is seeking to win over. Striking, isn't it, that in his ministry, as he preached, Paul mocked, was ironic, and even sarcastic. Would you attend a, 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 a church led by the Apostle Paul, I wonder? But the church in Corinth was profoundly worldly, and you can see that from verse 8. And you can see two alreadys and one without us. Already you've become rich. Already you have all you want. Without us, you become kings. The issue was one in timing. They thought that because Jesus had already risen and was enthroned and is enthroned today, we also should already have all the benefits of Jesus' coming kingdom. They didn't realize that we are living in the dawn of Christ's new age rather than in the midday sun. And that really is the issue with all kind of prosperity gospel churches that you may have attended or come across that promise us health, wealth, and prosperity to today. Think of the Joel Olsteins, the Joseph Princes, the Benny Hins, the Brian Houstons, the Hillsongs, and so forth. It's an issue of timing. We think we've got it all already. And at the back end of verse 8, I think Paul deals with it beautifully. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Okay, yeah, the day will come when Jesus does return. Jesus has died for sin, raised from the grave, ascended and rules, and he will return. And on that day, there will be a glorious Feast. Is it church family lunch today? I think it might be. Might it? Is that happening today? Somebody said something about that. I'm afraid this will pale into insignificance in comparison to what is coming. Not the other way around. It'll be a glorious party. It'll be a grand reunion. You know, there are people I cannot wait to meet again. Family members. 
and then other great heroes of the faith. I can't wait to sit down with Luke, the author of Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. I'm just longing to sit down with him and ask him all sorts of questions. It will be a glorious day. No more death, no more sickness, no more pain. And I love that image of him reaching forward and wiping away tears from individual eyes. No Ukraine, no pandemic, no arthritis, no relationship disasters, no abuse. Would that you already did rain. Would that it were the full day, midday sunshine and not just the dawn. Would that it were the, if you like, the not yet and not the now. But as it is, we live in the now and he has not returned. And so says Paul, verse 9, I think God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become, the word is literally a theater, a spectacle. It's the word from which we get our th word theater. To the world, to angels, and to men. Of course, it has to be like this, doesn't it? Think of the Lord Jesus. He was crucified in weakness. He was raised in power. Blessed are you when people hate you because of me, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. They will hate you because of me. Because the message of the cross of Jesus is a message that demands we confront our own sin. And the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus is a message that insists there is a day of judgment coming. And the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus is a demand that we surrender to God and cease our wicked rebellion. And this message opens up to us eternity and forgiveness and the presence of God and blessing. But the world hates it. I don't need my sin forgiven. How dare you? I can do without God. How dare you? There's no judgment coming. How dare you tell me these things? And so those who speak it and those who belong to churches that are faithful and, and insist upon it being spoken, weak, foolish, rejected, despised. On show to the world. Like apparently defeated prisoners. Ready to be put to death. I love the last little piece of verse 9. Uh, to the world and to angels. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? The image of the angels craning their necks out of heaven to look in on those who are faithfully proclaiming the cross of Christ. But I wonder if this is what prevents so many of us from going into a lifetime of paid gospel proclamation. <laughs> when we have the gifts and the abilities and so forth, oh, we don't want to be hated. We don't like being a spectacle to the world. It's far more comfortable to do otherwise. And I wonder if this isn't the reason why so many senior leaders of our main denominations refuse to speak openly about the teaching of Jesus Christ on all sorts of issues because they want to keep their place at the top table 
the spectacle. The experience, what will it feel like? Verses 10 through 13. Let's read them, shall we? We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Engaging gospel ministry in apostolic fashion, your reputation will be trashed. Your life will be stressed. Your image will be tarnished. Many of us work in industries where reputation is everything. Lose your reputation and you've had it. But verse 10, we're fools for Christ's sake. We're weak. We're held in disrepute. You stand up openly and clearly as a man of Jesus, a woman of Jesus. You are unafraid of men in your workplace and speak boldly of Christ. Oh, the wisdom of this world will hate it. The power brokers of this world will detest it because they go like lemmings after the world in all these matters. You'll never gain approval. Your reputation will be trashed. Your life will be stressed, verses 11 and 12. The apostle whose sole priority was to advance the Christian gospel at all costs experienced extraordinary deprivation and marginalization and pressure. Why, he even worked with his own hands. And to the Greeks who were as snobbish as you are about work, That was extraordinary. If you'd been to university to end up doing manual labor, dear, oh dear, oh dear. The idea of working with the hands was utterly demeaning. Reputation trashed, life stressed, image tarnished. When reviled, three beautiful couplets, we bless. When persecuted, We endure when slandered, we entreat. To be reviled is to be made the object of scurrilous suggestions. They will say outrageous things about you. To be persecuted is to have damaging actions added to damaging words. They will seek to destroy your work. To be slandered is to have evil motives ascribed to you. Remember last week we were told it's only God who is to look into the motives. But to be slandered is to have evil motives ascribed to you by the worldly. And again, we think of Jesus. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and rejected, and we esteemed him not. In this world, because this world hates Jesus, so this world despises Jesus. 
And because this world despises Jesus in a world that values the pathetic achievements of man rather than the divine attributes of God, so those who follow Jesus will be despised by the world. So the advance of gospel ministry will always come with disdain for gospel workers. Worldly churches will value worldly approval. Gospel ministry will look for God's approval. That very tricky word, optics. <laughs> I know in our businesses and in government organizations for which people work, you know, we employ lawyers and PR consultants and all the rest of it to try and make sure the optics are right. It's a fairly pharisaical idea, the idea of optics. How were the optics for Jesus? What were the optics like for the apostle? His reputation was trashed. His life was stressed. His image was tarnished. And verse 13 brings us to the image that I've suggested might come from the kitchen. It might do. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The words are words for sweepings from the floor, dirt removed from the body, contents of the dust cart. I kind of think of Paul who worked in the manual labor of uh, tanning. He would have had images of, you know, cart loads of offal and stinking fat scraped off hides others have suggested perhaps the scum from your bath nobody takes a bath these days so that's no good and others you know your rather dainty recycling bin here's mine it's uh, it was sprouts and sprout peelings, and at the children's uh, talk over the road, oh, it absolutely stinks. Uh, at the church, it's been in my office actually for the last few days, so people have raised a slight eyebrow when they've come in. But uh, in the children's talk, actually, Katie, who was doing it, took the potato peelings and emptied them over the head of some individual. What would it look like to be in gospel work? Scum. How will it feel? Rubbish. A great friend of mine who has been very faithful to the apostolic gospel, very faithful indeed, had a telephone call from another friend of his who also was very faithful in gospel work. And his friend rang him every week to encourage him. And he was been going for a particularly rubbish time as a gospel worker and he said to the older friend who rang him every week, oh, I just feel like get giving up. It's such hard work. We keep getting slandered for this, slandered for that. And the older friend said, get used to it and hung up, which I would not recommend as kind of number one pastoral approach, but actually that is what Paul is saying gospel ministry is to be like. And I just wonder to myself, you know, why is it that the charismatic churches in this city are so marked by a lack of spiritual courage when it comes to speaking publicly 
in the power of the Spirit about Jesus' teaching on human sexuality. <laughs> they claim to be filled with the Spirit, and they have this spirit of cowardice. Run away! Why is it? Oh, because they're worldly. They love the approval of man. And they don't want cross-shaped, Christ-like ministry. One little bit. What will it look like? What will it feel like? What does it mean to engage? What is the practice then? And here we have the conclusion of Paul's argument in defense of his ministry, 14 through 21. And you'll notice here he admonishes, he exhorts, he models, and he rebukes. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some of you are arrogant as though I wasn't coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Well, we've had some talk as a staff team about what it looks like to lead and speak when there is disagreement between churches. What is apostolic ministry really like? How should we handle worldly churches and worldly leaders and worldly Christians? How may I say what Paul has done in these verses does not quite fit with everything we initially said. For Paul has used biting sarcasm, mockery even, Paul tells them off. Paul sends Timothy, who can't possibly at this stage be viewed as some kind of proto-bishop. He's under 40. He's an apostolic delegate. He's never described either as an overseer or as an elder, so he can't possibly be a proto-bishop. But Timothy reminds them of his example. So Paul models... And at the same time, Paul has a relationship with them. He loves them. I became your father in Christ. He's their spiritual father. And he does it from a position of love. And the image here is of the family. So we've had gladiatorial arena. We've had kitchen pigswill. And now we have the family. Love admonishes. Love exhorts. Love models. Love rebukes. Do you rebuke your children whom you love? I hope you do. If you don't, there is something wrong with your love. And teaching in the New Testament is not simply a classroom exercise. Be imitators of me. I sent Timothy to remind you of my ways. And teaching in the New Testament isn't just a matter of kind of saying truth and saying truth. It's applying it and exhorting. The word is very strong. Call towards strongly. Exhorting people, urging them. And so here's my final kind of interesting question for us to ponder on before we draw things to a close. 
You know, if you subjected Paul's ministry to a review of some sort, were you to review it, would he pass? I will come to you soon, if the Lord's will, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? He means metaphorically there, of course. He doesn't mean he's going to beat them up. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit? Would he pass your review, Paul? possible to subject Christian ministry to profoundly worldly reviews. Nothing to do with the apostles' standards. And so this passage ought to cause us to think long and hard about reviews that we read and ask, are they actually just worldly? And a real danger because... (laughs) If worldly criteria are applied, as the Corinthians are doing, to genuine ministry, and we then start thinking, oh dear, we can't do this, and we can't do that, and we can't do the other, well, then we won't be in apostolic ministry any longer. (laughs) And if we're not in apostolic ministry any longer, then all the issues dealt with in chapter 5 through 16, you can talk as long as you like. Nobody's going to pay a blind bit of attention. And so all of you who are trustees of this wonderfully and helpful, so helpful in all these areas of Christian ministry, we need to think long and hard, don't we? It is the plumb line we're holding up to this ministry, authentic apostolic plumb line, or is it just worldly? And it's a battle for the very heart of the church, isn't it? Lose this. You've lost apostolic ministry. Misjudge this. You've lost the gospel. Three questions. What will it look like? What will it feel like? What does it mean to engage in this kind of ministry? Three images, the gladiatorial arena, the pig's will, and the family. Three conclusions. It will look like death. It will feel like rubbish. And it will mean being ready for admonition in the church. Exhortation in the church, example modeled in the church, rebuke in the church. If you describe any of those things as spiritual abuse, then I'm afraid you have lost touch with apostolic ministry. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for those who have come to us and exercise this kind of ministry amongst us. How painful it can be and what sacrifices people have made for us. We thank you for the great ones who've gone before and established Christian churches in this land and so many of the freedoms we currently enjoy. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would enable us to understand gospel wisdom and apostolic truth and apostolic ministry. 
Help us to engage in it properly and rightly with good order and conduct. And guard us, we pray, from shirking from it. In Jesus' name, amen.